Good morning, church. Uh, my name is Stephen, and I used to serve here as the church planter in residence. I am now a church planter and serve as the lead pastor of the Point Church at Federal Way, uh, just a little south of here. Uh, it's really nice coming up here on Sunday mornings because no one is on the road, uh, so there's no traffic, and I get here in record time. And um, very excited to be with you guys today. It's really funny. I was talking with uh, Corey Shirishi, uh earlier today, and he said, you know, you always seem to come up on big days for your church, and this is another big day in the life of our church. Uh, we have our second preview service today at 5 o'clock, and uh, we are, you know, still trying to figure out what this thing looks like and what our Sunday gatherings will be, so we would uh, really encourage some prayers for us as we uh, try to figure this thing out, and that's where forging a head down in federal way uh, with an expression of God's church. So what we just prayed uh, is often called the Lord's Prayer, which is really a total misnomer. To be honest, the Lord's Prayer is a kind of a bad name for what that is um, because it really is the disciples' prayer, right? This is actually the prayer that, that Jesus taught the disciples to pray. Um, and there's a real reason why he taught the disciples this. Um, there's a lot of things that, that are, are contained in the Lord's Prayer, but, but it's a, 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 a liturgy that we have spoken together uh, as followers of Jesus for thousands and thousands of years. Um, and it's beautiful. It's a wonderful thing to, to come together and to, to see these words and memorize these words, but they, they often don't mean much. Because we don't really know like why the Lord's Prayer is there. What was Jesus doing while he was teaching the disciples to pray? And, and I was one of these people uh, growing up, always knew the Lord's Prayer, grew up living, uh, living in the house of pastors. Um, and so uh, I, I was very uh, aware of what the Lord's Prayer was. And then the greatest thing ever happened. Maybe not ever. That was a, I, I kind of built that up. Let me take that back. Then a really cool thing happened, and I made the varsity football team uh, at Redwater High School in Redwater, Texas. And uh, I know that any of you who went to high school around here, you think that football is big here. It's not. <laughs> you think your stadiums are nice here. They're not. Uh, to, to have a little Texas hubris for a second, uh, Texas football is a big deal. Like, we, I was in a town of about 1,000 people, and we would have regularly over 3,000 people at our football games on a Friday night. That meant the whole town plus was there, right? Everything shut down. Not a gas station was open. Not a store was open. Nothing was open on Friday night. Everybody was at the game. You were a celebrity. We, I remember my senior year, we were actually good, praise God. Uh, we, we had, at the time, held the, the record for most consecutive losses um, in, state, in Texas football history. Uh, luckily, that has been broken this year. Uh, so Redwater is no longer the losingest team in Texas history. Uh, but we, uh, so we, we would, like, get free meals places. Like, it was, like, people would give us stuff. Because, like, we were local celebrities. And, you know, as a 17-year-old kid, I was like, I have arrived, right? Like, this is great. I got a pizza stick for free from Delauders. It's awesome. So I, you know, Texas football is huge and everything about schools and communities and athletic programs are all about football. 
I don't know if you've ever seen one of the greatest cinematic things uh, to ever come out of ever, uh, but Friday Night Lights is one of my favorite movies and captures so fully what it's like to play football. And then there was a show, Friday Night Lights, which was probably even better. And it just showed like how this whole community surrounds itself around the football team and it rises and falls on the shoulders of these 15, 16, and 17 year old boys, right? It's, it's kind of silly when you think about it, but it is what it is. So I made varsity and I remember that uh, every, you know, every night before we went out, it's, it's weird. If you haven't played football, I, you're probably a better person than the rest of us. But so uh, you get high school football, like you're in the locker room and you are just getting psyched. Like you are like smashing your head like into the locker. Like you are like pushing each other around and everybody's like getting all jostled up and ready, like going to battle. Like that's what it felt like every time that we would go out. But right before we would go out, so we were, right, we're all pushing each other. We're all jostling. We're all like ready to go, like just hyped up on testosterone. And then we say, let's take a moment. And we would all take a knee and we'd all put a, put a hand on the guy next to us and we recite the Lord's Prayer before we wanted to go like kill all these other guys. Like that was what we did every week and we would recite the Lord's Prayer and it meant nothing. <laughs> like it meant absolutely nothing to us. Like we had just like rallied ourselves, gotten us into a frenzy. We, we bow and we say these words and then we, we go out and you know try to hurt other guys. So like that, that was like really like what I thought of the Lord's Prayer. Like it was this, this thing that we just said before we went into battle. Like that was kind of what, uh, what, what what I thought, and, 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 and I never really took the time to think, why does Jesus teach this? Why is this something that stuck? As the church formed and as we started to, to kind of decide our creeds and liturgies and things that we would say together, like this, this teaching of all of Jesus is stuck. And it kind of permeated all of, of culture for a long time. And it even permeated the football field. And so when, I, when we look at this today, we're going to really look at why Jesus taught this. And, and even more than that, what he taught us about himself in here. Now, this is, we're going to be in the, the book of Luke. Luke is a gospel of Jesus or a biography of Jesus' life. We're going to be, uh, we're going to start in chapter 11. If you guys have your Bibles, I would love for you to turn there. If, if you have a phone, there's an app that has all of them on there as well. You can find and read along with us, or the words will be on the screen. But we're going to be in chapter 11, and, uh, and, and chapter 11 starts with this, you know, really easy introduction he was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. So this is a question, right? The, the, this teaching is in response to a question from his disciples. Now, you might think, you know, why don't you know how to pray? You've been with Jesus for a while. Like, what, what is it that you're actually asking from Jesus? And, and just to, to kind of give you a, a little insight, uh, so Jesus was, was what we call a rabbi, or he's a teacher. He had followers, and, and each rabbi at this time had a certain way that they would have their disciples pray. That's just what they did. So John had taught his disciples a very specific way to pray. John is a guy named John the Baptist who was the cousin of Jesus who at this time actually has been executed um, for, his, uh, for how he taught and what he taught. 
And so John's, I remember earlier, a couple chapters earlier, John's disciples actually came to Jesus and they were kind of upset about why Jesus was teaching things differently than John did and why, you know, why people don't, his disciples don't fast as much as John's disciples did. And so, so this, this question is really important. Jesus' disciples are saying, hey, everybody else, their rabbis all tell them exactly what to say, exactly how to pray. So would you teach us? to do the same. And this is, what, this is not the first time that this has actually been broached. What we prayed earlier was out of Matthew 6, and Luke 11 is not a parallel passage. It's actually a completely different passage. This is the second time that Jesus has taught about prayer and taught how to pray, and he gives again this very, this, this formulaic kind of answer. But this, this formula is so beautiful because it teaches us so much about who God is, and who we are. And in just a few short, simple words, Jesus lays out a beautiful treatise for how to approach the Father. And he starts, so our, he starts like this. He said to them, whenever you pray, say, Father. So let's talk about first, let's, let's ask the question, who is God? Because Jesus starts very quickly saying, when you, when you, whenever you pray, say, Father. Now, this is not just a, a random kind of word that God or that Jesus chose for God the Father. It's an intimate phrase. In, in the reading from Romans that, that Jake uh, read earlier, the, the term is Abba, Father, which is probably what, it, what the actual word was that Jesus said. Jesus probably said Abba. Now, Abba is not a, a, a distant Father, it is a very close, intimate word. It's a word that's never been used to describe God in Jewish history. The only times that we see the word father it's as a, like in pertaining to humans, it was always a corporate father. God corporately is the father of Israel. And that's the only times that we actually see this word father used. And it's not Abba, it's another word. And here Jesus says, hey, it's not just that God is your corporate father. God is our individual father. This is intimate and without pretense. This is inviting without preface, and this is innately without pomp. There is no building up here. This is a very direct approach. Jesus says, when you pray, say, Father, Daddy, Go to God without any pretense, preface, or pomp. And that's got to be a pretty jarring thing for these guys. If you know anything about like Jewish worship, it is all about pretense and pomp and, and, and preface. There are things you have to do to be able to approach worship. There are things that you had to, to there's all this, this pomp that goes into sacrifice. And Jesus is saying, hey, when, when you pray, though, let's just take all that away. And let's start by saying, Father. And then he goes on to say, your name be honored as holy. So the second thing we see about God is that he's holy. He is completely separated from us. God is not only our Father inviting us in, 
But he's inviting us in even though he is so much higher than we are. It shows us our place in this relationship. We looking up towards a holy, separated, set apart God. But a father who is inviting us in. And and then it goes on to say, your kingdom come. So we see that God is king. Whether we want to acknowledge it or not, God is still king. Like that's the reality, right? Like whether I acknowledge God's kingship doesn't really matter. He's king. Then Jesus continues with give us each day our daily bread. Telling us that God is a provider but not just a spiritual provider. Here, this daily bread, yes, we can think of it as figurative bread or or sustenance for our soul, but we also understand it as a physical thing. God is provider for both the physical and the spiritual. Jesus understands the practicality and the need to understand the practicality of God. Father, holy, provider, king. And then my favorite says, forgive us our sins as we also forgive everyone in debt to us. He's a forgiver. There's no reason that Jesus would teach us to ask for forgiveness from God if he didn't know that God would grant forgiveness, right? Like Jesus wouldn't teach us to do something that wouldn't happen. And so, so Jesus here is, is, is setting up in just these few words, very simply, who God is. He is so much more than just Father. He is so much more than just Holy. He is so much more than just Provider. He is so much more than just a Forgiver. He is all these things and so much more. But, but oftentimes we, we kind of get caught on the one thing, right? What do we, I said my favorite part of, G, of God is, is forgiveness, right? I love that because I do a lot of stupid things. So I really need a lot of forgiveness. So I love that God is a forgiver. And I can get really caught up in God just being forgiver and forget that he is also completely holy and demands holiness, I can get caught up in holy, right? God is so holy and I'm, you know, and I, we, we end up having this, this separation where like there's God and here's me and, and we forget that what, what we read in Romans that we're invited into the family of Jesus, that we are co-heirs with Christ. So yes, God is holy. Yes, he is king, but he's also father. He's also forgiver. He's also provider. This, this beautiful treatise that Jesus is laying out shows the complex immense nature of God. And so when we pray, we have to remember all of the facets. We have to remember all of it. And that's a lot to remember, but Jesus made it so easy. He shows us right here. Here's the things to remember. And so then we move on and we ask, okay, so this is how we pray and this is who God is. But what does God do with that prayer? Jesus starts to clear that up as well. In chapter 11, verse five, he says, he also said to them, suppose one of you has has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves of bread because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I don't have anything to offer him. 
Then he will answer from inside and say, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I have gone to bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he won't get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his friend's shameless boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So what will God do? God will respond to persistence and boldness. Now, I want you to imagine this situation that Jesus is putting out, right? You go to your friend's house at midnight, knock it on the door, their, you know, ring uh, doorbell is going off, and you, you know, you got a little video, they're, they're, they're looking on their phone, they see it's you, and they're like, go away, you know, through the door, and, uh, you know, you're probably going to end up on TikTok, but so, uh, so they're like, hey, you know, go away, and he says, uh, you know, no, I really need something from you. I have another friend that came and I need, I need some bread. You're like, man, please just help me out. Your friends, you're saying, no, my, my kid's in bed. My wife's asleep. My dog's, I'm about to let my dog out, okay, on you. You gotta get out of here. And, and it's a very reasonable response, right? The response is, hey, I'm, I'm in bed. You're coming in the middle of the night. I don't have anything for you. And I think Jesus is saying, that's what, how we expect God to answer us. We expect that when we come to God with something, he's too busy for us. He's already moved on to something else. But there's something about the boldness and persistence that Jesus says, but if you come boldly, if you are willing to say, Father, Abba, if you're willing to know and ask God what you need, God rewards boldness and persistence. And this isn't the only time that Jesus says this. Jesus would tell a parable about a woman who went to a judge every day and demanded justice for herself. And finally, the judge kind of to shut her up says, okay, you can have what you asked for. Jesus is constantly showing us that a one-time ask isn't kind of the way to do it. A, a you know, a, a scared ask isn't the way to do it. Jesus is, is kind of telling us here, look, if, you're, if you are boldly and persistently coming to the Father, I'll answer prayers. When you are boldly and persistently praying for your friends to come to know Jesus, he'll answer prayers. But if we're just saying like, Lord, it'd be really nice if at some point, you know, my friend came to know you, <laughs> be awesome. Or Lord, you know, I, I really want to be able to share my faith, but I know that, you know, you work in your own way, so I don't, I don't really know. Like Jesus is teaching us how to pray. And he says to do it boldly. And he says to do it often, persistently. And then God responds. Now, God doesn't respond out of our own, because we uh, like some merit, right? We didn't earn the right for God to, to respond. But because he is our father, and when we stand boldly and ask him persistently, he says, yes. I'll give you what you need. Now, that doesn't mean we always get what we want, but it means that we always get what we need. And there's a big difference. So he responds to persistence and boldness and he answers prayers. Jesus would go on to say, so I ask you, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek 
and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Like, it's, it's really simple. Not only do we go boldly and persistently, but when we're truly seeking what God wants and has for us, we'll find it. When our friends and family who don't yet know Jesus are truly seeking truth, guess what? They will actually find truth. Our job is to know who God is and know how he works and what he does and how to, to come alongside the work that he is already doing through prayer. I don't really understand all the dynamics of prayer. I, I know that there are stories in scripture where, uh, you know, where praying changes things so much. And I know that, that God has already determined all of these things and, and somehow he in, involves us in the process. I don't know how all of that works. And that's okay. I don't have to know how all that works. I just have to know that it does. I just have to know that when I ask, God responds. The other thing, another thing that we learn from this prayer is that God forgives sin. Like I said, Jesus wouldn't tell us to do something that God wasn't willing to do. And he invites us to ask God to forgive our sin. And only God, only a God that is holy could do that. Only a God who cares would care enough to do that. And so Jesus is, is constantly setting up all about who God is. Jesus is showing us, hey, this is kind of how the kingdom works. I don't know if you know this, but Jesus talks a lot about the kingdom of God that he is establishing on earth. And this is how life works in the kingdom. So this prayer that we may have prayed a thousand times isn't just a nice thing to say when we're scared or when we're about to enter the football field. This is a great way for us to know God. And finally, the last thing that I think that we see is that God leads us. The last line of the prayer is, and do not bring us into temptation. By bringing us, that, that implies, you know, the, the, another translation, other translations say, do not lead us into temptation. God is leading us. Again, just like his kingship, whether we acknowledge or not, whether we acknowledge God leading us or not, God is still leading and guiding us. Even if we're not following him, God holds everything together. He holds it all. He shapes it all. And so, God truly is leading. So now I think as we, we've, walked, we've walked through, we've kind of seen who God is. We've seen what God does. And then really the question I think that we're, we're gonna kind of center back around on is, is verse 11 through 13. The question really is, I, I see who he is, I see what he does, but is he really good? Because Knowing that he is father, knowing that he is king, knowing that he is holy, knowing that he is provider, all of that is great. But if he's not good, then that doesn't really do anything for me, right? A bad king 
doesn't take care of his citizens. A bad father doesn't take care of his children. A bad provider allows us to go without. So we really have to ask, is God good? And Jesus answers that question really in verse 13. He says, if then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And, and, and of course, this is Jesus saying, yeah, of course God's good. But then we look at our lives. Then we look at our world. Then we look at evil. And we say, how can a good God do that? How can a good God allow X, Y, Z, insert whatever tragedy, whatever evil, whatever sin, whatever crime, insert all of that in there. Why does God do that? And the the real, honest, fully transparent answer is I don't really know. I wish, I wish I could stand up here and tell you exactly this is why God does bad or allows bad things to happen. He never does bad things, but he allows them. I don't always know, but I, I do know that scripture has something to say about it. I do know that there are multiple times in the book of Luke where, where Jesus says that someone is blind or someone has suffered 100% so that he, God can get glory. When Jesus healed a blind man, and they, people around say, "Who he's blind, why? Because of his parents' sin or because of his sin? And Jesus says, no, he's, he's blind so that I can get the glory. And he heals him. And that's a really hard, that's hard. What, what, what Jesus is saying is that God allowed this man to live his whole life suffering with blindness for this moment so that God could get glory. And for our brains, that is really hard to understand. 10, 20, 30, 40, we don't know how old this man was. How many, how many decades of suffering did this man go through for one moment? And the question is, is God's glory worth it? And, and what's, what's really great about this man's story is that it wasn't just God being glorified in that moment. It's 2,000 years later, we still read and see God being glorified in that moment. We know that God brings people through tough things. My, my wife right now uh, is reading through the Bible in a year and she's in the book of Job. And we think of the story of Job. If you don't know the story of Job, Job is a man who was completely upright and righteous according to the scriptures. And yet, God allowed all of his children to die, all of his stuff to be taken from him, his houses to be destroyed, his cattle and sheep all to be taken from him. Even his own health was taken from him. And the question is, 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 can God be good and allow those things to happen? Are we willing to, to look at a God who in our minds stands back and lets those things happen and say he's still good. I think that we can, I think we can say that God is still good and here's why. Because all of this, all of the suffering that we have as humans, first of all, is brought on a little bit by ourselves, but even though it was us and not him that created this, he still sent Jesus. 
He still sent the very thing that was most precious to him, his son. He still stepped out of heaven for you and for me to take all of that on himself so that no matter what we do in life, as long as we put our faith in Jesus, we get to be with him. And all of these things, all of these present sufferings, the Bible is very clear, this is all temporary. This world is all temporary. And yes, I know that, that Jesus and God mourn with us when we hurt. I know that because in the story in, in John where Lazarus, a friend of Jesus, dies, he comes and he weeps and mourns. He mourns with Mary and Martha, who we're about to talk about. He mourns with them. He weeps with them, even though he knew he was gonna raise Lazarus from the dead. We, we, we serve a God who came and who felt every emotion that we had. That is how I know he is good. He could have found any other way to bring us and welcome us into his family, but he chose to suffer and die. He chose to, to not count his godship, his divinity. And he stepped out of heaven and he said, you know what? I'll live as you live. I'll show you that I'm good. And if that God, that God who was willing to give up even his own life, tells you that he's good, I'm gonna choose to believe him even when I don't see it, even when it's hard, even when it hurts, I choose to believe that God is good. So that moves on to our next question. So then what do we need? So we believe that God is good, we know that he does things and we know who he is. So what do we need? And, and I think what's really interesting is you know, our needs are really determined by our design. If we have a biblical worldview, we should really understand that, that how we were created and why we were created is going to determine what we actually need. And so when we go all the way to the beginning of the story and we read the account of when God created man, he really created us for, for two things, communion with him, and community with each other. And I know that sounds super simplistic, and, and I think it is. But really, when we ask what we need, it's those two things. We need him, and we need each other. Because everything else kind of falls into place then, right? We see this in the early church. In, in a book that we call the book of Acts, which is like the second half of Luke, tells the story of the early church. He tells us, that everyone brought all they had, they sold their extra and they took care of each other. Now that seems kind of idealistic and you can have any opinion that you want about that, but the reality is, is that God I think is showing in the, the, the launching of the early church that they had him, they, they had the Holy Spirit come to them in Acts chapter one and then in Acts chapter two, we see them have each other and taking care of each other. So what do we need? We need communion with God and community with each other. And I know that seems, like I said, very simplistic, but most of the things that Jesus teaches are pretty simple and it's hard to live out, right? They're simple, they're just hard. 
Imagine if we today lived as a community who just took care of each other's needs, who when someone needed their car fixed, I knew how to fix that. I don't, don't come ask me. I don't know how to fix your car. Like what if when, when there was lack, we as the church stepped in to fill that lack? Because we as an extension of God's grace here on earth, we would then be acting as God is and God would be using us to be provider. So our needs are determined by our design. And so when Jesus lays out this prayer, he shows this need for communion here. And then through the rest of the stories, he shows our need for our community here. So that begs the question then, what do we need to do? So we know who God is, kind of know what he does. We determined that he is good and now we know what we need. So what do we have to do? To get those things, what do we have to do? So let's turn back in our Bibles, just one chapter to Luke 10, verse 38. We see a story of two women. Luke 10, 38 says, while they were traveling, he entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks and she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. The Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice and it will be not taken away from her. So we have this story. This is really interesting that these two, two passages of scripture line up together, right? If you, if you know anything about the, the original uh, manuscripts of these verses, there are no verses and chapter breaks, right? It's one continuous story. So as Luke is writing the story of Jesus, he's choosing how to assemble the stories, right? There are, there are hundreds, if not thousands and thousands of stories that he could have written that he didn't. So when he puts things back to back together, there's a reason. He's an author. He's a good author. He's a smart author. And an author, when they're writing, they always are putting things together for reasons, and so while these two stories may not seem to kind of go together, there's a very easy theme here. I think what he does is he sets up the story of Mary and Martha. And, and if you've been in church for any amount of time, you, you know the story. And oftentimes Martha gets kind of a bad rap, right? Like Martha was doing stuff and she should have just been sitting there listening to Jesus. Like, like let's pause and let's give Martha like her due. Someone had to cook the dinner, y'all. Like we're, they're hungry, right? Jesus and his followers are, are coming and they're inviting, she invited them over for dinner. So to not have dinner would be a problem, right? So she is doing to the best of her knowledge what she can to take care of the Lord. She's doing everything she knows how. And then we always kind of idolize Mary. We're like, oh, look, Mary totally got it. She sat at the feet of Jesus. Oh, how wonderful. What I think we miss is that 
both women are doing the right thing, maybe just not at the right time. You see, if we're all a bunch of Marys who just sit and we just absorb and we're just there for Jesus, that's great, that's wonderful. But Jesus calls us to come and hear and to go and do. So God calls us to both be Mary and Martha simultaneously, but choosing at the right time. And I think where, where the link between these stories really goes is that Mary understood that at that time, she could not do without the words of Jesus. She so badly needed to be around and hear Jesus' words that there was nothing that she in her power could do. And I think we mess this up. I think we oftentimes are so much doers and we're not hearers that we are going about and doing work that we think God wants from us, but we're doing it completely empty. We're not actually doing God's work. We're doing our work and trying to offer it for God. Because we cannot offer something that we do not have. And the only way that we can get and abide in Jesus and have him abide in us is to sit and hear. The only way that we can be an effective Martha is to also be Mary. We oftentimes are going and doing it. I am this way. I love to just go and do. And I forget that if I don't hear the words of the Father, I don't have the words to say. If I'm not given the energy, if I'm not given the blessing, if I'm not given the, the anointing, if I'm not giving all of those things that come by sitting at Jesus' feet, then I have nothing to offer the world. Nothing. Because there are plenty of people who do good things. And they ain't changing anything. Because we know that Jesus is the only thing that can fully change. We know that Jesus is essential. And so when, when Jesus says here that, says, and I love how compassionately he says it, he doesn't call her out, but he calls her by name, Martha, Martha. There's only one thing. There's only one thing that's necessary for work to get done. There's only one thing necessary to change the face of the earth. There's only one thing that you need, and that thing right now is me. And so then Jesus, or Luke then goes into Jesus teaching about prayer because that's how we can sit at the feet of Jesus. Yes, this is great. You coming and hearing a sermon and you worshiping, this is great, but this ain't enough. This is not communion with God that we were designed for. This, this helps to, to scratch that community with each other piece and a little bit of that, but we need more both. And prayer, coming to God, sitting and listening, that's where it is. That's what we need. We no longer can sit at the feet of Jesus physically, but we can spiritually. And so friends, we have to be doing work. We've got to be Martha's, but we first gotta be Mary's. And then Jesus shows us exactly how to do that. Mary intimately and innately knew what she needed was Jesus. So the last kind of piece of this. If we don't know Jesus, 
we can't really go to him. If we don't have this essential piece called faith, we're kind of just going to a guy we don't know, asking for a bunch of things that we don't need. So how, how do we, how do we know Jesus? It's strictly by faith. The book of Hebrews, which is a book written to early Jews, says that faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. For this, for by this our ancestors were approved. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. And then verse six says, now without faith it is impossible to please God since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Friends, we're called to have faith in Jesus. We're called to believe in the creator of the universe, invited in to be his children. But if we try to draw near without actually knowing him, we won't see him. We have to have this moment where we choose to put our faith in Jesus. And it's not just a a one-time thing, though that that one-time thing begins a life of regeneration. It's this constant understanding, this constant faith, this constant believing that what we need, what we would like to see God do can exist because it already exists in God's kingdom. Remember, at some point, we all get to be with Jesus again. That faith that we will see Jesus again, that faith that our world will be completely remade, all of that is essential to understanding Jesus. But how, how does Jesus meet that need? And I'll end here. The book of Colossians. Colossians is a letter written by a man named Paul to a, a group of people who he loved very much, a church just like this. And in a church just like this, probably a little bit different, they probably didn't have nice ceilings and all these things. But in a church, a group of gathering like this, Paul wrote this letter to be read out and, and Paul in, in Colossians gives what is probably a creed or a, a prayer, something kind of like what we did with the Lord's Prayer. He recites something that is probably recited over and over and over again. I think this shows us how Jesus fits and, and meets the needs that we have. Colossians 1.15 says this, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have him and his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So how does Jesus meet me? First, we have to understand that all things were made by him and through him and for him. So if all things are his, then can he meet every need? I think so. 
And then we, we go in and we look and we see that not only are, are these like ethereal things, but it's thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. And I know that we live in an age where, where we're so worried about who is leading us and what political leader is, is, is you know, going to the front and all of those things. But remember that all of those things, all of those things, Jesus already has it. He already knows it. And then it goes on to say that he is before all things and by him, all things are held together. How does Jesus meet our needs? Because he holds it all. Again, it sounds simple and it is, but it's so hard to believe. And then ultimately, how do I know, how does Jesus fit all of those needs? How does he fulfill all those needs? It's for God was pleased to have him, all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself. Whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the the cross. Ultimately, we have one need. All of us. We have a deep, innate need. That's need for Jesus. Everything else, yes, we worry about clothing. We worry about food. We worry about shelter. We worry about the state of our planet and the state of our nation. We worry about all of those things, but all of those things truly boil down to one need. We need Jesus because we are broken. And broken people create broken things. And so if we truly have the faith that's talked about in Hebrews. If we truly believe in the invisible God creating the visible world, and we believe that Jesus is what is wrong with everything, right? No one has, we don't have Jesus. We don't look like him anymore. We don't act like him anymore. Because we, as humanity, are broken. Then him reconciling us to himself, that's how he meets our needs. And yes, we believe that he will do so much more. We believe that he will take care of the physical as well as the spiritual. But guys, the the reality is, is all of the physical things that we have don't matter if we're still spiritually broken. And so that's why when Jesus teaches us to pray, he says, ask for forgiveness of your sin. He knew that he would take that sin on himself. He knew that he would bring all of us into his family. So friends, What does God want from us? He wants us to believe that he reconciled us to himself. He wants us to trust that he is enough. He wants us to have communion with him and community with each other because that's what he designed us to do. I think the Lord's prayer shows us all of that. I think Jesus proves that, hey, only one thing is necessary and that's me. As simple as it sounds, it's the answer to every problem. Because whole humans, reconciled humans make whole reconciled things. Then we build a world that looks a lot more like the Garden of Eden than today. A perfect world where we're in communion with God and we're in community with each other. Let's pray.